Podcraft. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Prebil Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one partners, family, friends, co workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Understanding Racism. Relationships are at the heart of this work. And I have a conversation with a friend of mine and colleague that I've known for over almost 19 years, Connie Burns. Connie lives in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains here in Black Mountain, North Carolina. She has been a counselor for over 30 years studying various body and trauma-focused therapies. She was moved toward activism by the existential threat of climate change and the current deep rifts in Western culture. So we have a conversation as white people, how to educate ourselves as white people to engage in conversation of racism with people of color. We discuss how ingrained racism is in our American culture, We tell some stories of our background. Connie grew up in Indianapolis. She grew up in a very integrated neighborhood that became increasingly black as white people moved out because of redlining and such. And in fifth grade, she was the only white girl in her class. So she tells some of that experience. I tell some stories of growing up in Detroit, experiences of living in a very diverse culture, as well as an experience that I had in what I call reverse discrimination. We also talk about the challenge of relationships in the activist culture. As two therapists, we also talk about processing emotions around racism. We dive into the focus about the ability to not defend what we think and about being open to curiosity and interest and what we can do when we are confronted with racism. So I think this was a juicy conversation and a very important topic to discuss. So enjoy. Hey, Connie. Hey, Prepo. All right. So I'm (laughs) I'm excited to have it in the studio, these conversations that we don't normally have outside the studio. Yeah. And I have a lot of respect for the folks that you've been putting in the last couple years or so, especially around different types of activism and especially this activism around racism. How did you start getting involved in it? Well, I would say that I've had activist leanings on my life, but I really wasn't politically active until the last election. And I decided I'd better get involved. So I canvassed before the last election. I didn't really think Trump had a chance of winning, but I felt like if he did and I hadn't done everything I could do to prevent that, that I would really regret that. So I got involved in Move On. We mm-hmm. had a meeting at our house and I did the canvassing and then Trump got elected. And I just felt like I have to be engaged on every level I can. The issues are so, so critical right now. Climate change and and racism feels like finally it's at the forefront, Hmm. not in the way it needs to be, but more than it's ever been. And it felt like 
oh my God, I need to be part of this in whatever way that I can be. And so I just started looking for all the places that I could do that. And what showed up in, in the local area around here in Asheville? So locally, I first got involved in just a small anti-racism book club, and then I got involved in Indivisible. I had a friend who was involved in that, and it felt like because all of the, even though that's not um, a political organization, it's not affiliated with a party, the platform is very progressive and really matched the things that I'm passionate about. And so I ended up getting involved in that. And the first meeting of Indivisible I went to, they were creating new subcommittees. So if you had a topic you were passionate about, you could create one. So I created one around racism. And then we created a local book club that's been going. And so it kind of took off from there. How many people? You know, the the meetings here vary from like 25 or 30 to 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the month. We meet once a month mm-hmm. and it's a pretty good variety. We usually have some new people. And then of course we have a core of people who are there all the time. What's the diversity of it? It's white. Uh-huh, <laughs> We're go. in Black Mountain. Yeah. It's white, it's unfortunately. White. Yep. Black yep. Mountain, North Carolina is yep. pretty white. White and almost all much older also. Mm. Yeah, few younger people, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. So that would be wonderful. But here we are. So how does that play? You know, like a lot of the activism, of course, in some way is aside from the white people that want to create more equality and so forth and bring attention to other white people. And I know that we talked about how sometimes that's welcomed or not welcomed from the aspect of people of color and so forth. You know, mm-hmm. we need to educate ourselves right. and not have to rely on them to educate us on racism. But isn't that a form for white people to educate themselves on racism? Absolutely. And I think that is really critical because, and I think this is really true in a lot of the studying that I've been doing the white fragility thing of how difficult it is for white people to engage in conversation about race, particularly with people of color, because we equate racism with being bad. And there's so little understanding for many people that we all have racism in us. We grew up in a culture of white supremacy and we are all carrying the legacy of that. And so there's no way we can not be racist. We have racist beliefs in us unconscious or conscious. And so it's a lot easier for white people to start uncovering that and talking about that with other white people where we know we understand that with each other. Do you get people that argue that? White people that say like, no. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And and there's a lot of the I'm colorblind thing, which, you know, it's like, if you don't see color in this culture that is systemically and organizedly racist, then you're not seeing the experience of black people. Mm. You just aren't. Isn't that the same with, with uh, like sex and sexism? Like I, yes. the aspect of, no, no, I don't see you as a woman, but right. then, then I'm not taking into consideration right. all the challenges of being a woman. Exactly. So it's right in front of me. I shouldn't be sex blind. Right. 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 Exactly. You know, the thing of white people don't think of ourselves as having race in general, Mm. we are kind of the people and other people have race. And what that does is make all of that invisible. Just think of all the medical research based on men and white men and how we're just now finding out how much we've missed because studies weren't done on women because men are the prototype. White men are the prototype. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a really destructive pattern that I think we're on the cusp of really understanding better. So yeah, I'm excited to be engaged in this time where it feels like there's so much more awareness and potential to really bust that open Mm. in good ways. We were talking earlier about discussing relationships among activists and some of the challenges of that. And I'm just also curious to hear, you know, I know you in a personal way, but I also know you in a very professional way and you're a very, very skilled psychotherapist. Does those skills and and talents (laughs) come in handy when it comes to the observation and awareness of emotions and denial and all of those? That's so powerful. I mean, I, I really think, well, I know that I wouldn't be able to tolerate Like I wouldn't be able to manage internally the anxiety that comes up or the guilt and shame that come up when I make a mistake or when somebody calls me out on something or when I realize, oh my God, these people are doing so much more about these things I care about than I am without my background of really paying attention to my body, paying attention to my feelings, noticing the conditioning that comes up and says, oh, you should be doing more, you haven't done enough. Mm. And I think particularly doing trauma work where the focus is really on slowing things down and focusing on the process and the feelings and the experience rather than on content Mm. is so helpful because I was saying to you earlier, I think one of the problems on the left in this country is that we tend to get in these places where we're all arguing with each other. We're standing in the circle shooting at each other because you don't understand this issue like I understand it, or you aren't aware in this particular place. And rather than trying to see how we all fit together to get a a much bigger consciousness, we're wanting everybody to be perfect and it just is impossible. And that, that therapeutic thing of slowing down and being curious about what's happening and where's the opening and how do we connect to each other even when it's really difficult and tenuous feels so critical because I really think part of the reason that Trump got elected is because the left splits. Mm -hmm. And I think we split because we're all critiquing each other about how, (laughs) how deeply, how woke we are. Right. So we kind of miss the aspect of the commonality of, of humanity. Like like that part that you're talking about of really sink into the sensations of the body and not get into the content of the mind and the arguing of, right and wrongs of those little innuendos. My last week's uh, podcast was around self-compassion. And so self-compassion is a part that us as therapists, we know is a huge component to be able to deal with this particular subject in itself because making those mistakes, um, being called out, you know, there's an aspect of, whoa, I have to have self-compassion for myself. And one of the reasons I know that you're doing this work, of course, is because you're a compassionate human being. Yeah. And I think on the even larger level, how in the world are we going to reach across the divide in this country if we can't learn to find the connectivity, even when we disagree passionately about things? It's one issue that the left tends to split, but it's a whole nother issue that we are neighbors with people who now can't speak to each other, family members. I know people who don't speak to family members because they're on opposite sides of the political fence. And that's just tragic that rather than enriching each other with the difference in perspective that we have and yeah, arguing passionately for what we believe is right, Hmm. but we have to stay connected. And 
the reality is I think the world is really in peril. Yeah. Yeah, that's difficult. As you know, in conversation I've had with you, I have that with family members myself. Mm -hmm. And I've cut off even having conversations to a deeper degree. And I'm learning that I need to speak up a little more. Like if there's a, if there is, let's say this joke, you know, the word schwarze is put in and so forth, which in Yiddish means black, but it's derogatory. Mm -hmm. That I want to speak up more and say, hey, you know what? I know that you use that word. I don't want you to use that word around me or that joke or that comment that you say. I don't want you to use it around me. I want to be able to confront it, but at the same time, I don't want to engage in trying to change right. those people in my family. So it's a fine line, I think, for many people yes. in, in family that, that has that going on. Yeah, and with people, anybody that you care about, how to make space to listen and be able to hear and listen, even when what you're saying is like a knife in my heart in mm. a certain sense. Like it's so painful to hear you say something that is so racist or that doesn't acknowledge what's happening to the planet at this particular point. It's really hard. And I think we have to work on developing more resiliency to holding that space open, even when it's really painful. Mm -hmm. And I know with you that you're such a proponent of allowing those feelings to be felt the sadness to be felt, even around the, the racism attitudes and what's going on to feel that sadness and not just ride over it. Right. And a lot of people don't get that. They, right. they don't get that that's a first step to really feel what is going on inside of ourselves, even the, the shame, even feel the shame that's going on. Exactly. And mm -hmm. if we can't, then what happens is we won't be able to stay in the conversation. So staying in the conversation, that's, that seems like that's key. Yeah not like where the conversation is going to go, what it should be and so forth. It's like, just stay in the conversation. Yes. Don't try mm. and control it. Mm. Stay in it and stay open. And I, mm -hmm. that, that piece about feelings is so critical. I know that I couldn't, I couldn't stay engaged in the way that I am if I wasn't grieving really regularly about what's happening to the planet, about what human beings are doing to each other. And that grief is really hard. But when I, when I allow it to move through my body, I come back to clearer thinking and I come back to openness. So yeah, I really believe in that. I'm, I'm hoping soon to start a group with a friend just to offer a space where people can come and really weep, rage, feel whatever they're feeling about what's happening ecologically because mm -hmm. we feel like that's such a need right now for people to be able to stay open and not go into denial because mm -hmm. it's so overwhelming. Do you encourage people to feel their past aspects with racism? I know that we both have different backgrounds around some of our encounters, and yet everybody, like you said, is not immune at all to a racist past. It's in our culture, so therefore it's in our DNA. This nation was founded on it, as you say. So what do you do with your expression of having people touch upon some of their past experience with, with racism without without maybe, I don't want to say this, without getting re-traumatized in some way to use it as an understanding. Right, yeah. right. And I think that's always the sort of tricky part of processing trauma. There's the need to engage it deeply and also be monitoring so that we can pull out and create more safety and create a stronger container to be able to hold it. So it's a process. It's not a one-time thing. And I mm -hmm. think that's the other thing I would say is we Americans love to think that 
just do this thing, do these five steps, mm-hmm. and then you'll be no longer racist. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Well, isn't that, I mean, <laughs> I, I do hear people when I was going to give this topic uh, on the podcast, somebody said to me, so I want to know, like, I want to know what language do I use? What's the right language to use? Because I'm not used to it. What comes up? What do you say to people about the right language? Well, what I'd say is that there isn't any Mm -hmm. because people of color's experience is just as varied as ours is. And you know how that is. White people respond really differently to different words and different language and different jokes. And so my thing is white people's job is to really work on developing our resiliency to being called out. Like we need to really get to the place where we get curious when somebody gets offended and want to understand what's that about? You know, why was that offensive rather than, but I didn't mean that to be, I'm not, I'm not racist. I don't, rather than defending our position to get curious about what is it that happened because that's a blind spot for me. And we all have blind spots around race as white people. So we just need to accept that which again is a process mm-hmm. and, and get better at being able to stay in our curiosity and stay in our learning and be supported. We need connections with other white people who can support us. When If we do something and we feel really badly about it, where are we gonna go with that? Mm-hmm. Where do we take that grief and that shame that comes up? And with the, staying with the personal experiencers are saying, people are gonna respond differently. So instead of that aspect, I messed up in front of a, a black person. I messed up in front of this person. Mm-hmm. And they have a certain feedback to me that I need to take. It doesn't necessarily mean that goes across the board because I don't want to see people as just color or not color and so forth. I want to see them as individuals. Right. To me, that's the big bridging also is like, okay, so we have these differences and we have these different faces and these different colors and everything. But the core of it is that we're human beings. So how do, we, how do we deal with all of those spectrums in that? And one to me is, okay, tell me your experience of what I just said. And I can see that maybe other people of your race or ethnicity has that uh, challenge, but I want to make sure that I know that it's between you and I. Yeah. 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 And the complexity of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that seems beautiful to me about this whole struggle is I think we're trying as a culture... We're trying to move from little T truth, which is this is what's true, to big T truth, which is probably bigger than any of us can actually comprehend. Mm. And so I'm going to hold one little facet of this truth and you're going to hold another one. And they might even contradict each other and both be true. And so there's something so powerful about our human mind's ability to be curious about that and rather than getting defensive and needing to defend what we think, the ability to step into a bigger perspective and say, oh, wow, I don't know that. I don't know that experience. Please tell me about that so that I know more, so that I get another facet of this big truth around race or around human relationship. Hmm. Yeah, that's a big one, curiosity and interest. Mm. If we stay in that field, a lot of things can transform out of that. Right. Yeah. Any, anything from your past that created some influence for the focus and, and passion that you have of the time that you're putting into this activism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on both, I think the two places I'm most passionate are around racism and around ecology and climate change. And I grew up in a very integrated neighborhood that got increasingly black as white families left because 
redlining and all, all the stuff that happens. And this was in where? What this city? was in Indianapolis, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And my parents decided not to leave because they really believed in integration and they wanted to stay in that place. And so um, in fifth grade, I was the only white girl in my class and I was not connecting to boys very much at that age. And I got a lot of bullying. My experience really was like up through third grade race. It seems to me, as I remember, that none of us were even aware of that. Like there was no talk about race. There were no issues. We were just kids and, you know, we all had our different whatevers. And then suddenly everything shifted. And then there was, you know, I got called honky a lot. That was the word back then. Back in the 70s. Back in the, yep. Back in the 60s. Yeah. And I got bullied a lot. And it was very complicated for me because I felt angry and hurt about that. And I also, my parents were really clear about the fact that black people were being treated really badly. And so they were the victims in the situation. So you couldn't really fight back. No, I couldn't fight back at that point, which I think was really unfortunate because I think if I had been able to fight back, we, we might've been able to connect through it. And because I just got really passive and shut down and disappeared, I just got picked on more and then I was more scared and it was a, it was a really negative feedback loop. And what, I, what I've been aware of as I processed that in the last few years is how hopeless I got about racism mm-hmm. because my parents were pretty smart people. They definitely had their limitations, but they were pretty smart and very well-intentioned. And I had teachers who I loved, black and white, and none of them seemed to know how to address what was going on. Like it didn't seem like any of the adults knew how to help us kids manage this because of course the adults didn't know how to manage it with each other. And they weren't willing to take the risk to fail. Yes. And I've often thought, wow, if we had had a counselor, if we had had a school counselor who could have brought us together to talk about things, to make a safe space for us to feel like how different that experience could have gone. So I feel really strongly about that, about the need for all of us to have safe spaces where we can go and talk about things so they don't get frozen. We don't get frozen into positions that don't really fit anymore. Good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. It feels good. It's Mm -hmm. really, really challenging sometimes, but it also feels really good as kind of as it feels like my body opens and my heart opens and I get more available to really living my life fully and engaging these issues Mm -hmm. more and more fully. That's my intention. So would you say that your experience was a little bit of anomaly for white people growing up? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think it definitely was. And, you know, most of my church friends, we went to a church that was a little farther north in Indianapolis and they were all a little bit, had a little more money than we did. And they were all in all white schools. And so their experience was completely different than mine. So I didn't talk to them about my experiences because they just didn't, it just didn't fit. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I've talked to anybody who has, well, and I don't know that that matters. And, and isn't that what we're saying? Mm-hmm. All of our experiences really ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's so true. You know, when I think about how I was shaped growing up, I grew up in the Detroit area where it was very diverse where, where I grew up to. And uh, my high school and, and junior high was about half black, half white. And I told you there was a lot of uh, Middle Eastern population, yeah. Chaldeans at the time, which is uh, Catholic Iraqis. And 
So a lot of my friends were not white, just white. And it was a comfortable situation for me and to integrate and, and uh, to have friendships in that way. And I kind of tended because of sports and other aspects to make a lot of close friends with black people. And, and the music that I like was not the Detroit rock and roll was Motown and funk and uh-huh. and I could I could dance I'm, I like I, I, I am not gonna be shy about that I, I'll hopefully get a video on me one day and not just audio but I like to dance and that story that I told you of 16 years old going with my Chaldean friend Jabron I don't want to call him Chaldean friend just my friend but he's Chaldean so he was um, not as white as me this Jewish boy and we went to a house party down in Detroit, but when we were getting into the, the gates of the house, a couple of young black guys said to us, hey man, what are you doing here? Why are you here? This is not American bandstand dance. <laughs> and I was like thinking, American bandstand, man. That's exactly why we're not here, because we're not going to American bandstand, uh-huh. we wanna go to this house party. And another black friend of ours that we knew said, hey, hey, these guys are cool, let them in. And that was my first kind of little bit of reverse discrimination experience mm-hmm. that, I, that I had kind of brushed it off and a little side note that the one guy that did say that to us he's an nba executive right now i'm not going to name names <laughs> but i'll forgive you brother i'll forgive you You're only 16 years old that's all right but that really shaped in some way those experience of my connection actually shaped and then being able to travel around the world in different cultures i'm i believe i'm very comfortable in different race and cultures and ethnicity however i know i have that little part of me because of growing up in the United States and just being in the world of some aspect of racism. And I've got to cue it and watch it. And sometimes it gets confusing because my experience is different. So yeah, it's in all of us. Right. Right. Yeah. We just can't escape it. That's so much. You were saying something earlier about gender too and how it's a white male supremacist culture. And so there's all of this stuff that all of us have have absorbed. Black people have internalized racist messages and women have internalized misogynistic messages. And so all of this about understanding that and not shaming ourselves about that, but being willing to look in and try and see and open and bring that stuff out into the air, which is exactly what this culture needs to do. We were founded on slavery and we have never actually dealt with that. We have never actually brought that up into the air and the light and dealt with it so that it can heal. And it can't heal until we deal with it. Yeah, I was flabbergasted when I found out that the police department was actually founded on organization to get runaway slaves. Right. That's the police. And, you know, to serve and protect the people now, right? But it's still, we know all the issues that are going on there. So it's still so prevalent and it's not like it's, way in our history. Yeah, it's it's right here, right now. Mm -hmm. And I just even think about that, like think about that phrase, to serve the people. And what we mean by the people is white people. Mm. (laughs) Or at least that's how it gets translated so much of the time. And how, yeah, we as white people need to claim our identity as white people so that we start understanding how different the experiences are for different people. So does that get confused when people say, yes, I want to claim my whiteness. And so then that's where white supremacy goes out out of bounds, right? Yes. Is that they're claiming it so much to the the separation or degradation of other races. Well, and I would also say, I think 
they've gotten very good at using language that doesn't sound Mm. like it's violent or separatist, like white identity rather than white supremacy. But that's actually the difference. Like I want to understand, I mean, race doesn't actually exist. Genetically, there are no such thing as different races. And so that's all a social construct. And so here we are, if people, just people are white people and every, you know, how often do you find in your language, if it's a black person you're describing, you say this black person. Right. If it's a white person, you just say this person, right? right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, this is the standard. This is the deviation from the standard. So getting aware of that, getting conscious about that and understanding that that white supremacy, oh gosh, there's a whole nother place we need to go off into <laughs> because I think The other piece that we don't understand is how there was no concept of race until the concept of race was needed, one, to justify slavery, and two, to separate white indentured servants from black slaves, Mm. to separate them and pit them against each other so that they would not unite and stand up and say, this system (laughs) is not workable. So make it a racial issue instead of an economic issue. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Instead of a class issue, it becomes right. a race issue. So if poor whites are pitted against blacks, then they're not going to rise up together against the class system. And so here we are. That's where it comes mm-hmm. from. And so those poor whites got uh, brainwashed is a really strong term, but I think it kind of fits mm-hmm. in the sense of, well... I may be poor, I may not have any of this, but I'm better than those black people. And therefore, I'm going to put huge amounts of energy into that in order to make myself feel a little bit less of the shame and degradation and horrifying neglect that people in poverty of whatever shade of skin feel. Yeah, that just blows my mind how that just is going on that that people of minority are still pitted against each other. That used to just blow my mind when, you know, growing up in, let's say, the Jewish culture and that aspect of looking down on other minorities of blacks. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like, what are you doing? Jews were were persecuted (laughs) for thousands of years. And now you're going to go ahead and persecute somebody else instead of having empathy for them. And that happens all around with Asians and so forth, pitted against, you know, different different cultural groups and uh, Mexicans and Latinos and all that's going on pitted against each other. I just, it blows my mind right. in some way of like how, like you said, the white white identity or white supremacy was able to do that yes. instead of if all of the different cultures united with yes. each other, yes. how powerful that would be. Yes, <laughs> how quickly we could overturn the system as it works right now, so unfairly for yeah, most d- d- of just us. Just like some article I read about, like if all the spiders united, they can eat all of humanity. <laughs> you know, <what> <laughs> Maybe they should. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, yeah. well, I just had the thought too of how all of that gets predicated on the idea of hierarchy. And one of the things I've been thinking about is hierarchy of sacredness. How if your image of God moves from sort of the multiplicity of deities that look like animals, they look like male, female, they look like mixtures of animals and people, to God looks like a white man, what happens then to the ability to say, well, 
I am entitled to this because I am more sacred or I am closer to the image of God than mm. you are. And how incredibly dangerous and destructive right. that has been yeah. for us. And I think that's really hard for people to look at that we're treating the planet as if animals and plants and ecosystems are not sacred, are not part of the divine. And look at the result of that. We may not be able to be here in another 30 or 40 years because of that. Right. I'm curious to hear from your point of view, what can people do day to day, you know, in that, and when they're either want to bridge the, the, those divides, when they see um, discrimination, mm -hmm. you know, um, I'll uh, tell a little bit of the, the story that I told earlier, but I, I'm curious of, you know, cause some people want to know like, so what can I do to bridge these relationships? So how, how could I work on my own mm -hmm. uh, prejudice, heal my own aspect, but day to day, is there things that I can do to shift and change things in, in this relational world? Absolutely. And I think if you don't have connections with people of color, it's really smart to do some kind of racial justice training with other white people to get information first, because you're going to be surprised at how much emotion comes up for you around mm. that. And so like here in Asheville, there's Building Bridges. Nationally, there's the Racial Equity Institute that do really great trainings about looking at systemic racism, looking at the institutionalization of white supremacy that really opens your eyes about, oh, this is not about bad white people who are racist. This is about the culture got founded on these ideas that continue, continue to be put into place in our justice system, in the economic system, in the housing system, in the educational system, in all of those places. And that's so helpful then to give you some strength and energy because it's not easy either. Like the story that you're going to tell to stand up in the system and make another white person uncomfortable by saying, this doesn't, this, there's something not right about this. Why yeah. are you doing this? is very difficult to do. And I think we've got to have some kind of groundedness in our own system about, yes, I know this is true. These are the things I know. Yes, we need to do something about that to be able to take those risks mm -hmm. to speak up and stand up against racism and in other arenas too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many degrees about that standing up. And I think uh, just as us as, as therapists, we really help people to many degrees of how to put their boundaries up. Right. You know, whether, you know, your your physical safety is at, at danger, your boundary mm -hmm. is really different than right. if it's not. You know, I told you the story before of some years ago, I was, I heard from, I'm going to get her name right, Dr. Joy DeGruy was telling a story about uh, her and her sister-in-law. Her sister-in-law was half black and half white, but she looked very white, blonde hair, blue eyes. And they were at the Safeway store, wherever they lived. And her sister-in-law wrote out a check to the cashier and the cashier was chatting her up really friendly and so forth. And when it was her turn to pay for her food, the cashier did not engage with her at all in a friendly manner, asked her to see two pieces of ID and all along she was going through her mind, what should I do? Her little 10 year old daughter was looking very kind of nervously like, mom, what, what are you going to do? And she knew it was kind of tenuous, you know, how much of a fight should she put up? 
And then the cashier subsequently took out the bad checks book that uh, that was years ago, but to take it out and take her license plate to match it. And just when that was occurring, her sister-in-law jumped in and said, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You didn't do this to me. And the cashier said, well, this is our policy. And he's like, bullshit, it's not our policy. You didn't do that. It's not your policy. You didn't do that to me. The two other older white women that was behind her in line also started to speak up and say, that's wrong what you're doing. And so what she said was instead of her having to stand up, that one aspect that the other people, white people can do is stand up when they see yes. discrimination and bigotry like that. And that spurred me to some years ago when I was in South Carolina getting coffee and I gave my credit card, was waiting for my coffee and a young black guy was paying for his coffee and gave his credit card and she asked for his ID. And he kind of reluctantly took out his ID, kind of rolling his eyes like, damn, you know, why does this have to mm -hmm. happen? And I jumped in and I said, wait a second, you didn't ask for my ID and I turned around and my card actually says <laughs> CID on the back instead of my signature. And they didn't even ask for my ID. Yeah. And there was a little kind of scuffle with the manager in, in some ways, but they didn't take it further. And he thanked me and uh, I felt good about that. But I've, like you said, in our conversations, that was a risk that I took. That was an experience. But some people on the other end might not want that. Right. And they want might not want us to to stand up in that way. But I liked erring on that side of, of yeah. compassion. And, and hopefully I'm not just seeing it from like a racial standpoint. Hopefully I'm going to stand up for any kind of inequality or suppression that's happening, not just with race. But this is something that we can definitely do Right. When we see it, because a lot of people feel, what can I do? And also, there is reluctance of their own safety. What do exactly. I do? You know, when this is happening, that it's coming out with real blatant racism and bigotry that the person may be at harm. Yeah. And think of, you know, like even that story you told might have gone differently mm. if the two women behind hadn't spoken up as well. It makes a difference when there's when there are more people speaking up and saying, yeah, this is not right. No, we need to change this. Right. So it's really at this point on white people to start speaking up and really working to end this white supremacist yeah. culture. There's a good website on the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. It's called Speaking Up, Responding to Everyday Bigotry. And it goes through a lot of different scenarios, examples of how to speak up, even in your own family, when family members are telling, let's say, racist jokes, how can you speak up and say, look, I don't want you telling that joke around me. I know that I can't tell you what to do in your house, but in my house, I don't want you speaking that way. So that's also, you know, a little yeah. touchy thing, but I think as we're talking about is not to stay complacent and to take the risks and to speak up in our own value systems of, of what we feel is just. Right, right. Yeah. And because part of what happens in white privilege is so much of what's happening to black people is invisible to us because of privilege. So for us to begin to see and speak up really makes it harder for the system to continue operating in the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, wow, I, we transversed some <laughs> different little worlds around it, but I... I really appreciate your perspective and the work that you're doing out there to really bring that 
to awareness and I know how much you're so dedicated for the for the healing of the planet and this is a huge part of it so thank you so much for for doing your work and <laughs> bringing awareness to this thanks people what a pleasure to be here and get to talk about it in this venue I haven't done this before so it's exciting and I appreciate a chance to have this conversation you dig good <laughs> you dig good thanks Relationships. Let's Talk About It is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more on licensed professional counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit HeartShareCounseling.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk at AdiTheMonk.com. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling and psychotherapy, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. Relationships, Let's Talk About It is produced by PodCraft. Create your own great podcast today, faster and easier at podcraft.us.